Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When authors Doug Stone and Bruce Patton were researching their book, Difficult Conversations, they asked people what they felt was their most difficult conversation to have in both their personal lives and in their career. And time and time again, people pointed to conversations involving feedback. They didn't like giving it, and they especially didn't like receiving it, even when the feedback was meant to be constructive. But here's the thing, knowing how to give and receive feedback is essential for our personal and professional growth. To remedy the discomfort we have with feedback, most books and articles focus on how the giver of the feedback can take the sting out of his delivery with tactics like the ever-popular criticism sandwich. But Doug Stone argues that in his latest book, when it comes to feedback, we should be focusing on how we can be better receivers of it. Stone is the author of the book, Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, and today he joins me on the show to discuss why constructive criticism is so hard to take as well as brass tax advice and how you can be less defensive and more open to the feedback you receive on a daily basis. You want to take notes with this episode? It's crammed with information that can improve your life immediately. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash feedback. Doug Stone, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you are the author of a book called Thanks for the Feedback. You previously wrote a book called Difficult Conversations, co-authored a book called Difficult Conversations. It's a great book. I've read that one as well. But what I thought was interesting, the research and writing of that book, you all uncovered that the most difficult conversation that people reported having was giving and receiving feedback. What is it about feedback that just makes it hard to give and people hate doing it? Yeah. Well, I have this sort of weird job where, uh, among other things, I go into organizations or communities or work with families, and one of the first questions I ask them, I'm working with them on communication, how to how to communicate more clearly. One of the first questions I ask them are, what are some of your hardest conversations? What are some examples? And we make a list, and pretty much without fail, they'll always put giving and receiving feedback on the list, and that applies whether it's uh, you know, some global corporation or just some smaller group. It just, it seems to be a universal human challenge, uh, getting feedback, giving feedback. Uh, and so that was when, once we started realizing that that was such a common pattern, we decided to really try to focus on that question. So what I thought was interesting, the way you guys approach this though, is that, you know, most books and articles you see about how to make feedback better focus on the giver, right? So you do the, do the compliment right. sandwich, you know, start off with something good you like. Yeah. Give the feedback, and then start with the comp- then with a, end with a compliment. 
Um, but you argue in the book that that gets the solution to the problem backwards, and instead we should focus on the receiver of the feedback. Why is that? Yeah, well, you know, the compliment sandwich, by the way, uh, it's it's not a terrible idea, the idea of starting positive, then negative, then positive. But the problem is, of course, if you gave someone a sandwich that had bread, ham, and bread, they wouldn't call it a bread sandwich or a bread, ham, and bread sandwich. They'd just call it a ham sandwich because they know the thing in the middle <laughs> is the important part. So the uh, the challenge with the compliment sandwich is, especially if people notice that it's a pattern, they kind of dismiss the positive stuff, and then they just take on the negative stuff so it doesn't end up serving the purpose that maybe it should. Um, so, But yeah, our, our angle on this was to focus on the people receiving the feedback rather than the people giving the feedback. And again, from, from where I sit, we were getting called in by organizations to help train their managers in how to give feedback better, which makes sense to us. So we went and we did that. Uh, and we did a bunch. And over time, what we found is people, the people that we were working with would say, yeah, this is helping a little bit. It's, people are getting better at it. But the whole system still isn't working as well as we're hoping or as well as we'd like. And we started thinking about that. And we were thinking, you know, what, can, what, what else can we teach people about how to give feedback? And it suddenly dawned on us, just like stunningly obvious, that there are two people in that conversation, right? There's a feedback giver and a feedback receiver. And we're focusing all our energy on how do you get better as a feedback giver? And there's only so far you can go. You can go from not good to pretty good or pretty good to very good. But at the end of the day, the person who is deciding what that feedback means, whether to take it, uh, is the person on the receiving end. And so we started looking at the whole question from that point of view. Right. And that's, and that could be a hard sell um, to say that you, the, for the receiver to improve their improving how they receive feedback. It's like, listen here, I got this feedback I'm going to give you like what, what you're doing wrong. And here's how you can actually listen to me better. It is a hard sell. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a hard sell, but so let's talk about this. Like what makes receiving feedback so difficult? So you argue in the book, there's two tensions inside of us that make feed, receiving feedback sort of hard to swallow. Yeah, so uh, just as human beings, we all have two driving needs. Well, we have, we have a bunch of them, but among others, we have two. And one is we, we do want to learn and get better and improve. And if you ask anybody whether they want to learn and get better and improve, everybody says yes. Uh, at the same time, we want to feel like the people around us, the people we work with, the people we live with, the people we care about, um, accept us and love us and appreciate us the way we are now. And so we, on the one hand, we want to get better, which means we need to sort of hear feedback, take it, engage with it. And on the other hand, we are kind of stuck because we're thinking, well, what does that mean? If they're, they're giving me all the feedback, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about whether I'm okay the way I am now? And so it's a, it's a difficult place to be. And it's not not because there's something wrong with any individual person that they don't like getting feedback. I think it's, it's pretty universal. Right. And, and so you say there's three obstacles or what you call triggers that blocks us from, you know, getting to that point where we want to get better. We listen to feedback to get better. Um, and it, these triggers cause us to get defensive. What are those uh, obstacles? Yeah. So when we studied this, we realized that there's a million reasons people don't take feedback. And you could just make a huge list and say, 
here's a million reasons why we get in trouble. Um, but what, uh, you know, a, a reader or somebody uh, who's learning about this can't really, you can't really do anything with a list of a million reasons or even 50 reasons. So what we try to do is just break them down into three key categories, three kinds of uh, triggers that we all have that can set us off. And the first is, is the most obvious, which is what we call the truth trigger. And this just, if we get, if I get feedback that says, you know, you talked, you were sort of dominating that meeting or you were talking over people and I'm thinking that's just wrong, you know, either because I don't think I was talking that much or in, in an extreme example, maybe I wasn't at the meeting. So it's like literally actually wrong. If we get feedback that we think is wrong, we're not going to take it. And reading uh, this book about feedback, people think, well, so if taking, if receiving feedback is a good thing and that's how you learn, does that mean I have to take all feedback, even if it's wrong? And of course the answer is no, right? We have enough feedback that's right and useful. We don't need to be taking feedback that's actually wrong. That's going to send us in the wrong direction. Uh, so the, the key around the truth trigger, and we can get more into this uh, in a bit, uh, isn't that, well, we should just assume all feedback is helpful and right and accurate, um, but just that we, we we're probably rejecting feedback before we even understand what it actually means. Um, and that's a, that's a common pattern. Uh, a second trigger is uh, what we call relationship triggers. And this is not so much about the substance of the feedback, right? It, it's not so much the content of what someone's saying, but just sort of who that person is, who's the person giving it to me, right? So we're going to hear feedback differently if it comes from our spouse or our partner or our parent or our boss or our child or our neighbor or someone we like, someone we don't like, someone we trust, someone we don't trust. Uh, and we tend to let the, the sort of who dominate the what. And in our view, it's, it's important just to just separate those out to think about, you know, who's giving me this feedback and what's my reaction to it. But is, even if I don't necessarily trust this person, is there anything that might be legitimate or useful to me in, in what they're saying? And then the third trigger is what we call identity triggers. And this is mostly about what, what does the feedback say about who I am and how I see myself? Uh, and when feedback feels, you know, you get feedback that you're not a good parent or not a good boyfriend or, you know, the presentation didn't go well. It's very easy to, to let that sort of get out of, uh, control and just start thinking like, well, what does this mean about me? And what kind of person am I? And what do people really think about me? And we just, we, we start getting so lost in that, that we're not, we're not really even taking in the feedback anymore. Gotcha. So let's, uh, let's go into these, uh, these triggers and how to overcome them in more detail. Uh, so the truth trigger, um, you start off in that section about breaking down the types of feedback that we get. And you say there's three, there's appreciation feedback, coaching feedback, and evaluation feedback. Can you briefly describe what each type of feedback looks like? Um, and then we'll talk about how those things can get mixed together and cause problems. Yeah, exactly. So imagine your partner or roommate or spouse uh, has been cooking meals for you in the evening and they've made, let's say they've made meatloaf for the last 30 nights. Um, so a priest, let's say you want to give them feedback on this meatloaf. 
appreciation would say, uh, honey, I'm so uh, grateful to you for putting all this time in, making it meatloaf. It means a lot to me, right? So that's appreciation. We know what that is. Coaching would be um, offering advice on how the meatloaf can improve. So you might say, I think meatloaf tastes better if it's fully defrosted before it's served. Uh, so you might have some little cooking tips there. And evaluation would, evaluation sort of ranks the person or the effort. So you might say, well, we've been having this 30 days in a row and day 17, you know, this feedback was in the top third of all the meatloaf that you've made. Uh, and so each of these appreciation, coaching, and evaluation have different purposes behind them. And as you say, and we can get into, um, they get sort of mixed up, and that's one of the that's one of the things that makes feedback the toughest. Yeah. So let's talk about how can they get mixed up, and why does that cause problem? Yeah. So the the one of the first things that happens is that appreciation just drops out. And you know, in the workplace, I think people just feel like, well, we're you know we're, we're busy. People are getting a paycheck. Uh, and so we, uh, and you know, the, the, the negative feedback is, is always an emergency, right? You know, you've got to, you've got to turn this document around. You've got to get this out. Those are emergencies. It's never an emergency to pull somebody aside and say, thank you. That was a really great effort. Um, so appreciation can easily drop out, but studies have shown that, uh, the U S department of labor did a couple studies where they found that, uh, over 90% of American workers, feel underappreciated at work, which is kind of a, a staggering statistic. And uh, a similar stat, they found that people who leave their jobs voluntarily, in other words, they're not fired, but they quit, um, cite a lack of appreciation as the number one reason. About 50% of people say lack of appreciation as the number one reason. So uh, when appreciation drops out, it really has a potentially very negative effect on the relationship. Uh, and, you know, appreciation, I think it's, as with the feedback sandwich that we started with, we can we can often give appreciation that sounds like, you know, we say, hey, great job, that's the appreciation. Then the things we want them to do differently, we say, I've got a list of 100 things that I want you to change. And then at the end we say, and by the way, great job. So the, the positive appreciation is incredibly general and it's not attached to anything. The person has no reason to believe that it means anything. Um, and then the negative things, the things that actually need some action are very specific. And uh, it's actually quite useful to try to offer specific appreciation, specific positive things that the person is doing well, uh, partly because it makes them feel good and partly also that teaches them that those are things that they should keep doing. So one of the, one of the key challenges is that appreciation drops out and that can be rough on the relationship. Um, the other key thing that the, the sort of common dynamic is that coaching and evaluation get confused and that we, we often hear um, coaching as evaluation. And I'll, I'll give you an example. It's just a simple example. Imagine you're driving and you have a passenger and you can imagine whoever you want as your passenger, but the passenger just says, hey, slow down, you're driving too fast. So what is that? What's the message there? You could hear that. In two ways, you could hear that as coaching, like drive a little bit slower, it's safer. There's, you know, that's going to be a useful tip around your driving skills. Or you could hear it as evaluation, like you're a reckless person or you're, uh, you know, you don't care about safety. 
and and the person might be saying one or the other of those, but as human beings, we often tend to hear the evaluation that's given, uh, and we the coaching drops out. So the part that's going to help us actually get better at something, if somebody has actual driving tips for us that might be useful to us, um, we're not going to hear them if we just get into an argument about you know why are you always criticizing my driving, et cetera. So how do you? how do you separate coaching and evaluation? Like when you're having that, when someone's giving you feedback, like, do you stop the conversations? Like, are you trying to offer some advice? Or are you evaluating me? I mean, like, do you have to be so um, obvious about it or can, are there subtle ways to separate the two? Yeah. So, you know, I think in like a formal work conversation, you can separate them out just by literally raising them saying like, is this an event? Is the purpose of this conversation to rate me in some way to rank me or is it coaching? Um, in personal conversations, you know, a big thing that I've been working on in my own life is just trying to change the default assumption that I have about what the person is doing, because very often my default assumption, I think this is true for a lot of us, is that I hear it as evaluation. I hear it as just criticism about who I am. So if they're commenting on my driving or the way I dress or the, my presentation, you know, it's very easy to hear it as you're not good enough there's something wrong with you. You're an idiot, whatever. Um, and that's my sort of default. So that, and that, and that it's, so when I get feedback, if, if I'm giving a presentation and there's a break and someone comes up to me and says, Hey, you know, I think it'd be good if we, uh, did an exercise after the break, you know, that sounds pretty clearly like it's intended as coaching. It's intended as advice to help me do something better. Um, but if I'm hearing it as evaluation, which is my own tendency, then I'm just going to hear it as, you know, your presentation stinks and uh, we just wanted you to know that. And so now I feel bad. Plus, there's nothing I can do, right? Just like, okay, you don't think I'm good at this. That's, that's where we're at. If I hear it as coaching, it's not a critique. It's not an evaluation. It's not a ranking. It's just an idea that I can try to take on board or not something they'll help me learn and improve and, and get better, which is pretty much the whole point of the feedback in the first place. Yeah. And I think another point you made was too, is when you ask for feedback, make sure you know what you're actually looking for. I think sometimes people ask for feedback from people and other, when you ask someone, I want some feedback, they're thinking, Oh, they want me to coach them or evaluate this. But like the asker is really wanting some appreciation. Like, Hey, this is, you did a good job. Keep going at it, you know, but, and then they don't get that and they get all upset. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was, I, I've been taking some guitar lessons recently, just trying to pick up from my sort of high school guitar skills. Um, uh, and you know, I'm a pretty rudimentary guitar player to say the least. And I had sort of learned this one thing and I played it for my teacher. And what I really wanted was for my teacher to say, wow, look at that. Like you actually played something and it, uh, it, it almost sounded like something. And what he said instead was, okay, so uh, here's a couple ways you could fix that or improve that. And I was just thinking, yeah, this, this, is, not, this is not meeting me where I'm at right now. Uh, so it's very, it's very easy to get those um, confused, and it can be rough when that happens. I think that's some good um, insight for the giver of feedback. You know, I, I guess when someone's starting out with something, a beginner, they probably need more appreciation, more evalu- positive evaluation to keep them going. And then as they get better, that's when you can start giving more of the coaching, right? And the, the fine tuning. Yeah, exactly. I had a, a teaching assistant once who uh, kept saying, you know, 
give me more coaching, give me more coaching. And, uh, and I kept saying like, okay, so next time you could do this differently and this differently. And then she would say, no, but give me more coaching. <laughs> and we, and it was sort of like, she kind of wouldn't stop. And I was thinking like, wow, I've, I've, I've told you everything I know. And I don't know how much more of this you can even take on board. And finally it occurred to me, she's, she's asking for sort of advice on how to improve, but I hadn't really given much global appreciation. And I just sort of stepped back and I said, you know, something occurs to me that, that I haven't said, which is you're just really good at this. Like if you keep doing this, you're going to be good at this. You have, you have a lot of passion and talent for this. And she was just so that, that was like exactly where she was at. She, that was what she needed to hear. Uh, and as you say, I think that's right. Especially at the beginning when people are trying to get their feet under them, that kind of feedback can be just, you know, more important than any other, than, than the best, most brilliant piece of advice. So going back to this truth obstacle, you know, one of our, I think, knee-jerk reactions when we receive feedback is trying to find out why that feedback's wrong. Like, why is this guy wrong and why am I right? Um, and it's natural. But how can we overcome that uh, knee-jerk reaction and actually listen to or uh, consider the feedback with, you know, like you said, you don't have to necessarily accept it, but at least consider it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when we, often when we, we're, we're taking in feedback, we're hearing it through the question in our head. The question in our head that's playing is, what's wrong with this feedback? And if that's the question that you have, there's always going to be something wrong with it, right? It's, it's out of date. It was, a, it was a month ago that that happened, or it was five minutes ago that that happened. It's not true anymore. Or, you, you know, you talk to the wrong people or you didn't put the feedback quite the right way. There's always something wrong with feedback. And so if we, if we sort of throw out feedback just based on spotting something that's wrong with it, we're always going to end up throwing out all the feedback. Um, and uh, it's not that we should therefore ask the question, you know, it's, it's not that we should just say, okay, well, if I'm not supposed to ask what's wrong, I'll just assume it's right and take all the feedback because as we said before, that's not going to be useful. But uh, so it's fine to ask what's wrong with it, but we also need to pair that with uh, its uh, sort of sister question, which is what's right about this feedback? What, what can I actually learn? What would might, what might be useful about this? It's a sort of like if you went into a clothing store and you tried on a pair of pants and they didn't fit and you just walked out and said, well, the, the, clothes in the store don't fit. And, you know, it would be pretty reasonable to say, well, you tried on one pair and they didn't fit. They've got a hundred other pair of pants. And it's the same with feedback where we think if we can find one thing wrong with it, then that feedback, we're just going to throw it out. Uh, but better to actually step back and say, uh, you know, is there anything here that, that might be useful to me that, that might make sense to me that might actually help me? And I think another issue that gets to this truth trigger is that um, there's often a, um, uh, a miscommunication about what's going on, what's actually happening. So there's these blind st- spots that exist. So like people can't read your brain, they can't read your mind. So you might have, you might have intended something and, and they give you feedback that says, well, no, you, you, you were, you're doing this. This is what your intention was, but like, that wasn't your intention. You're actually trying to do this thing that you were, that they said that you weren't trying to do. So right. how do you close that gap between the, the giver and the receiver about feedback or about the truth of feedback. Yeah. So that, well, that, this whole topic of blind spots is, is really fascinating. I think, uh, I think everyone would agree that human beings have blind spots and what they mean by that is 
other people have blind spots. We it's very hard for us even just conceptually to think of ourselves as having um, blind spots. And by, by blind spots, yeah, a couple of examples are things like our facial expressions. If you think about sitting in a meeting in a in a work setting or in a family, you know, sitting around a family dinner table, everybody else in that setting can see your face. The only person who can't see your face is yourself. Uh, and so they all have this information about you, which is what your face looks like right now, which is information that you literally don't have. And you sort of imagine what you think your face looks like or what you imagine your face is conveying, if anything. And sometimes the way you imagine is right. And sometimes your face is kind of giving off uh, information or communication that is different, either different in the sense that it's not what you intended, or sometimes it's different in the sense that it's exactly what you're actually thinking, but didn't necessarily want to be saying. Um, I was working with uh, an executive uh, a few years back, and she had just gotten a bunch of feedback that said that you know her team members were down on her and didn't think she was doing a good job and found her very difficult to work with. And this was particularly disturbing because she had gotten the same feedback three years ago, and she was really working on it, and she was proud of herself for being easier to work with. And then lo and behold, three years later, feedback swings around again and she gets the same critique. And I said, well, what do you make of this? What's, what's causing this from what do you, why do you think people are finding you difficult to work with? And she said, well, here's what I think. I don't think I am difficult to work with. I think it's political. You know, everyone likes shooting down their boss. It's just, uh, you know, there's other stuff going on. And then, and 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 she assured me that she was a uh, you know a friendly, compassionate person. And then her cell phone rang, and she took the call as I was standing there, and I could hear her side of the conversation, obviously. And it was a colleague, a subordinate of hers, who had called to ask a question. And her response sounded essentially like this: She said, "No, I'm in a meeting right now. I told you that's the kind of thing." You should be finding out on your own. I, I told you not to bother me with these kinds of questions. Thank you. And then she hung up and she said, see, this is the problem. You know, the people I'm working with, they have no initiative. They keep bothering me with these questions. But as you could hear, I'm very polite. I explain things to people. So I don't know exactly what's causing the problem. And what I could hear and what her colleague could hear that she apparently wasn't hearing was that her tone of voice is filled with contempt for this person and frustration, right? So a uh, person on the other end of the phone isn't thinking, okay, so you're, you're coaching me on how to, you know, uh, do things on my own and you're saying thank you at the end, so this is all good. The person's hearing the frustration as the key message or the contempt. You know, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you don't work hard enough. And so when they evaluate her, that's what they're evaluating. And it's, it's a, uh, it's just a blind spot from her point of view. She doesn't, it's not that she's a bad person or that she's pretending. She literally didn't know that she was giving out those messages. That's a hard problem to solve too, because like in her mind, she thought that she was genuinely trying to be more easy to get along with, easier to work with, but like that actually wasn't yeah, happening. Exactly. So I mean, how do you solve that problem? Like when you think, oh yeah, I am doing this thing, but you're actually not doing this thing. How do you overcome that? Yeah, exactly. Well, so it, it is hard. Um, I mean, uh, just 
by definition, right? These are blind spots, and if you could see them easily, they would have a different name. Um, but the, the the thing that I've seen work best is to begin to notice the these these gaps where you think you're doing something well, and you're getting feedback not just once and not just from one person, but from different sources that say, no, actually, you're not doing this well. Um, and it's not that it, so what we tend to do is we explain that gap by some other, we, we put in some explanation, like it's political or they're jealous. These are, these are very common examples. People will fill in that gap by saying, well, they're, they're jealous of me because I'm successful or I'm good at this, et cetera. Um, and so the, the, the awareness for us has to be built around sort of that starting point where we, we think we're one way and we're getting, we do hear the feedback that, that we're maybe not so easy to work with in this example, but instead of saying like the, I have to explain it away, um, just sort of sit with it and say, you know, it's possible that people are giving me this feedback because they're jealous or it's possible that they're giving me this feedback because there's some political thing going on. But what if it, what if it were a different reason? What if the feedback were, in some way legitimate and important, what, how could I make sense of that? And then, you know, a place to go is to think about what are some of the common blind spots that we all have. And, and there's, the list isn't that long. It's things around, um, you know, body language, facial expressions, tone of voice, um, and so forth. And so once you start seeing those gaps and you start sort of running through that, you can at least, um, begin to get a sense of it. And, and then once you have a sense that maybe that's what's going on, you can talk to a friend or colleague and sort of urge them to tell you the truth, not just the, the friendly thing, but, you know, to say, look, I think this, I think I'm getting feedback here that might be in a blind spot. So I want you to let me know if, you know, how this looks from your perspective. Okay. So you're asking to tell them the hard, hard truth. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. 
There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Let's switch over to relationship triggers. I think we've all experienced this, right? I mean, I remember as a kid, if my parents gave me feedback on something, I'd just be like, roll my eyes and just like, oh my gosh, you guys don't know anything. But then if some coach or teacher or stranger gave me the exact same advice, I'm like, oh yeah, this person knows what they're talking about. I'm going to, I'm going to follow this uh, uh, advice. So I, I think we all intuitively understand why relationships can affect how we receive feedback. One of the interesting things I thought you hit on, because I've seen this in my own life, is this idea of switch track conversations that can happen because of a relationship. So what are switch track conversations? So in the book, we give, uh, I think, a great example that's also a fun example. People at this point probably know the comedian Louis C.K., and he's a stand-up comic, and he currently has a show called Louis on uh, cable. But before that show, he had a prior show called Lucky Louie. And there's a scene. Where, so in that show, he's married to uh, his wife, obviously. And he's about to have a romantic weekend with her. And he brings her red roses as a as a gift. And the first thing out of her mouth is, uh, you know, I don't like red roses, remember? 
And then the next thing out of his mouth is, uh, you know, uh, whether you like red roses or not, uh, a, a polite person says, thank you for the roses. And then you can comment on whether you like them or not. And then she says, why would I thank you for something that I don't want? And, uh, and they sort of go back and forth like this. And it's, when I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, this is a, it's obviously it's like a marital argument and it's, it feels very real and typical. And then it suddenly occurred to me that what was going on was this dynamic of what in the book we call switch tracking, where these two people are almost in two different conversations. Like they're, it sounds like they're talking about the roses and they're both talking about the roses. So you think, well, maybe they're talking about the same thing, but in fact, uh, the wife is saying, you don't listen to me. I've told you before that I don't like red roses. You don't listen to me. And the husband is saying, you don't appreciate me. I try to do nice things for you and you don't appreciate me. Those are just two different conversations. You can't have those at the same time, um, you know, sort of in a back and forth. You, you actually have to separate out those two topics and have each of them separately. Uh, and, 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 you know, they're not easy conversations to have separately either, but there's at least some chance that the husband or Louie in this case could say, so it sounds like you think I don't listen to you. Tell me more about that. Let's talk about that. And then he could swing around and say, so the other thing that's going on here is I feel like you don't appreciate the efforts that I make. And then they could talk about that. And there you at least have a chance. To, to get through both these conversations in a useful way. But once you start noticing that dynamic of switch tracking, it's unbelievable how common it is in our lives where we get or give feedback. Let's say we get feedback and instead of responding to the content of the feedback, we respond to how it's delivered or who's giving it to us or what time, you know, how could you, how could you send that bad news by email? How could you send it? on, you know, Friday at five o'clock. Not that those are, those may be legitimate conversations to have, but they're additional to whatever the actual underlying feedback was about. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's mainly like a defense mechanism because I know I do that, right? When my wife will bring something up, I'll say, well, like, you know, you really could have said that differently. Like I just completely ignore the feedback. I'm just trying to like, (laughs) trying to protect my ego by throwing, Hey, you're, well, you're not so great either because you do this thing. Exactly. It's, it's, I think that's right. It's partly a defense mechanism, but it's partly just, it's an, it's a real thing. In other words, you, like if you, uh, if you feel like you're either getting too much criticism or you're not appreciated for what you do well, um, when someone criticizes you, the thing that's in your head is, well, wait a second. What about all the times where I didn't do that? And so it's, you're, you're trying to defend yourself, but you're trying to defend yourself not to, you know, get out of, looking at the truth you're trying to defend yourself because you feel like you actually this is a legitimate important topic and it is um the challenge is just that it needs to be a separate conversation um you know if you uh comment on uh, the, the house is not neat or whatever and the person storms out of the room uh you know what is it that's triggering them let's talk about that and let's also talk about sort of what are the rules about how we keep the house clean. 
So how, how does the dynamic of a relationship affect whether you get into these switch track conversations? I mean, is it, is it if there's like a lot of tension, you're likely to more likely to move to these switch track conversations? Or if there's less tension, you're less likely to do it? Yeah, I think if there's more tension, we're more likely. But I think we all actually fall into them pretty commonly. That uh, Just think how common it is to say things like, I can't believe they told me that, you know, at five on Friday. Or... Uh, I don't like, you know, I can't believe they broke up with me on the telephone, that kind of thing. We're, we're, we're just, uh, very sensitive. And I think rightly so to sort of the way feedback is delivered and the timing of it and the, the, you know, does the person appreciate us or not? Um, so it just, it comes up constantly. And again, the, the answer isn't to pretend that you don't have your own concerns, for example, with Louie and the flowers, the answer is not for him to say, okay, I'll start listening to you from now on, and now we're done. The answer is for him to talk about her topic, which is listening, but then for him separately to talk about his topic, which is appreciation. All right, so be aware of it. So what can we do to mitigate relationship triggers when we're giving and receiving feedback, right? I mean, like like I said in that earlier example, like your parents or your wife could give you a set of advice, but you just ignore it because like, through your parents and your wife, but if some complete stranger gives you advice, you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to list that's that's actually a good point." Um, so, how do you overcome that bias of just totally disregarding advice if it comes from someone close to you, even though it might be useful? Uh, a few things. I mean, I think the the first thing is just to be aware of that, right? To to notice when you're in a pattern where your wife or a relationship or somebody is giving you feedback over and over again, and you've kind of stopped hearing it because it's your parent or spouse or whatever. And just to ask yourself, okay, so what's going on here? I'm not taking this feedback because they're annoying me or because this is, you know, it's my parent being critical or whatever. Um, and to, to, if you choose to, to, to try to make that discussable, to say like in a marriage, to say, look, um, you know, every, Every day you spend the day criticizing me for not taking out the garbage, uh, you know, the hundred things that I'm doing wrong. Um, let's figure, let's see if we can figure this out so we don't have to keep having the same conversation. Um, just making it explicit. And if it, you know, at the same time, uh, when we're sort of beaten down by too much feedback from the same person, it's fine to say and probably useful to say this feedback's not helpful anymore. There's nothing, nothing new in this feedback for me. Um, you know, I'm trying to change or here's the limits of what I can do, but you just giving me this feedback over and over again, isn't, isn't doing anything for me in terms of actually fixing the problem. So you argue in the book that the way we, uh, receive feedback and handle it can often be determined by our wiring and temperament. How so? Yeah, so there's this in psychology, some people subscribe to what they call the 50, 40, 10 rule. And I don't know about the exact percentages, but the, the idea of it is that about 50% of how we react in the world to feedback or the bad news or to setbacks um, is just based on our wiring, our constitution, you know, our literally our sort of. Uh, neurology. Um, and 10%, the 50, 40, 10, so 50 is wiring. 10% is based on the actual 
situation that's going on around us. So we're getting the bad news. You know, we didn't get the pay raise or whatever it was. Um, and that leaves this 40%. And the 40% uh, of how we react in any given situation isn't based on our wiring and it's not based on the actual situation. And so you say, well, what's left? What does it, what could it be based on? And what it's based on is the, the way we're interpreting what the news is, the story that we're telling about it. And so, you know, if you don't, if you don't get a pay raise, you might say, well, there's no story to tell. I just don't get a pay raise. So what, you know, what's the story? How do I, how do I tell a different story? I can't pretend that I got, uh, that I'm getting more pay. But what happens is if, if, you know, if we find out that we're not getting a pay raise, we might start doing these kind of snowballing, catastrophic thinking, thinking like, you know, uh, I'm never going to get a pay raise or I'm never going to do a good job or I'm going to get fired soon. And then it can even work backwards where we start saying, we start looking to the past and say, you know, I've never done anything right in my life and I can't do anything right now. And I know this is about work, but I'm also not a good husband. I'm not a good father. And before you know it, it's just completely out of control. And so the, the, the sort of um, advice is not to pretend that you're, you know, getting an increase in salary or to deny that you didn't get a pay raise, but to simply keep it the size that it is to acknowledge this is, this is what this is. This is what this means. But also it's not about the past. It's not about, you know, have I ever done anything well in my life? It's not about the future in the sense that this means nothing good is ever going to happen to me again. Um, so when we sort of supersize the feedback, it gets out of control. Um, and that's where that, 40% of how we react can come in is some people will, will sort of exaggerate things into the future and into the past. And other people are very good at sort of keeping it the size that it is. And some people are actually go in the other extreme, which is they don't take in the feedback at all, which is sort of a form of narcissism, which is not good either. So you want to, you want to be hearing the feedback, but keeping it, keeping it the size it is and keeping it meaning what it actually means and not, not a whole lot more. Right. So this idea of keeping things in proportion, this goes to, you know, the identity trigger, right? Whenever we receive feedback, exactly. it's like, boy, because the, I didn't get a pay raise, it means I'm a terrible employee because I'm a terrible employee. I'm a terrible husband, yada, yada. You, right. Yeah. Right. And yeah, if, if, if you actually got genuine feedback that all these terrible things were true about your past, about your present, about your future, you would be pretty depressed and unhappy and you would spiral out of control. But the point is that in most of these kinds of situations, you're getting a very discreet piece of feedback and then we're telling an exaggeratedly negative story about it. And that's just shooting ourselves in the foot. And you, you talk about, you know, in order to avoid this identity trigger, you need to switch from with a static mindset or a stack what's it, to a growth mindset. It's Carol Dweck's I call it. We've had her on the podcast before. To tell yeah. Yeah. This. Oh, great. Yeah, so her work has been really interesting. Yeah, she talks about a fixed mindset and a growth fixed, mindset. Yeah. And in the fixed mindset, the, uh, people think to themselves, "I'm I have a certain set of skills. Like I'm I'm a certain amount of smart. I'm a certain amount of athletic. Um, I'm, I have a certain amount of perseverance." And so that and that's fixed. And so the only thing that feedback does for me is it tells me what that amount is. So if I take a test in school, I'm finding out, am I smart or am I stupid? 
So when you go in and take a test, um, you know, the Civil War or whatever the topic is, and you think that the feedback you're getting on the test is you're smart or you're stupid, and you find out, you know, either way, if you find out you're smart, now you're thinking, okay, I'm smart, uh, but that puts pressure on me to keep being smart. If you find out you're stupid, you feel like, well, that's too bad. There's nothing I can do. I guess I'm one of those people who's, who's you know, destined not to do well. And Dweck says, but, you know, why are, why are we hearing it that way? We can just as easily think that uh, these endowments that we have, whether, you know, about intelligence or athletic ability or empathy or whatever the skill is, these are things that we can get better at, right? And it's absolutely true that you can get better at virtually everything in your life. It's not to say everyone's going to be LeBron James in basketball or Yo-Yo Ma, you know, as a cellist. But, you know, we can all get better, and sometimes we can get a little better. Sometimes we can get a lot better. Uh, you know, some, even, even people that are really, really bad at math can get better at math. And there's no, there is no reason to think of that as just this fixed thing. And once you start thinking about it that way, then you get your test score back on the Civil War. And instead of thinking, oh, you know, I've got a bad grade, that means I'm stupid. The, the information in this conversation is that I'm stupid. The information in this conversation is you don't know much about the Civil War. And the coaching is so study differently study harder, study more efficiently, you know, play fewer computer games, whatever. Those are all things that you have some power to influence, right? So you're not just stuck with a label. You can actually um, change it. And that gives you, that gives you a lot of freedom to improve. Uh, but it also clears away some of the, the high stakes that we associate with all these these measures along the way of our lives. Yeah, I think the, the, this understanding the fixed and growth mindset and focusing on growth mindset is really useful for that evaluative feedback or feedback you interpret as evaluative, right? You, someone tells you like, well, you're not that good and you can interpret if you have a fixed mindset, well, I'll never be good. But if you have a growth mindset, well, right. like, well okay, I'm not good now, but I can get better. Right, exactly. And that very naturally takes you, you, you do hear the evaluation, you know, I'm not that good right now. Uh, and again, you don't, you're not pretending that that's not true. You're not pretending that you're the Civil War genius or whatever. Um, but it also then, it, so you're, you're hearing evaluation, but then it quickly moves into coaching, which is, okay, if this is a thing that I can be better and worse at, and they're telling me I'm not good at it now, then the coaching is I got to I gotta start doing things differently. And uh, that gives you some some power over the situation. So let's talk about rejecting feedback. Because as you said, yeah. just because you know someone gives you feedback doesn't necessarily, you should consider it, but not necessarily take it into account or actually uh, apply what they give you. You know, Sometimes people are wrong. Sometimes you're not even looking for feedback. But rejecting feedback can be minefield because you know, you're, if, it's, if it's your wife and you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not really, they can get offended or your mom. You know, like, why don't you listen to me? So how do you reject feedback tactfully? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, it, the, the, as you suggest, the context matters, right? If it's your, if it's your uh, supervisor saying you didn't hit your sales targets for this month and you say, well, you know, that's not, that's, that's not where I'm at right now. I'm not going to be working <laughs> on that feedback. Um, that might not go over so well. 
Um, but there's lots of times in our lives for, for any number of reasons. And it can be because you, you really disagree with the feedback or you think it's the feedback's good for the person who's giving it to you, but not good for you. Or it can just be, you know, that's not where you're at right now. You're working on five other things. You can't take on one more thing. Um, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of good reasons to set feedback aside. And I think the, the mistake that we make sometimes is, is we, we don't discuss that. We sort of hear the feedback and in our minds, we're thinking, I would never take this feedback or I can't possibly think about this right now. But then we just kind of leave it. And then the other person sees that we're not doing anything. And so they come back and they think like, well, maybe they're not persuaded yet. or Maybe they didn't hear it. And so they say it again, and then they say it again, and then they say it again. Um, and the, I think the, the better course is to actually say, you know what, here's, here's what I'm hearing you suggesting to me. And uh, here's what I think of that. Either it does or it doesn't make sense. And here's why right now, or maybe forever, why I'm not going to pursue that. And the person can agree or disagree. Very often, once you explain it, they'll say like, okay, you know, I get that. Um, but they can agree or disagree. But at least they know that you've heard the feedback, you've understood it, and it takes away that urge they have to just keep saying it over and over and over again. Um, you know, another thing that I think can be useful is just to be very pointed about saying, um, tell me what the purpose from your point of view is of giving me this feedback. And then the person says, well, I want you to, I want you to get better. And then you, and if you can then tie it back and say, this feedback doesn't actually help me get better. And here's why. So, uh, I had a colleague once who right before I'd go up and give a talk, uh, he would give me little couple little things to remember. And he would do it over and over again. And from his point of view, he's just being as helpful as he possibly can. He's thinking like, well, these are the, these are the things Doug's probably going to forget. So I just got to make sure he remembers them. And, and I started kind of saying like, you know, don't, don't give me advice right before I start talking. And then, and he kept doing it and he's thinking, but it's good advice, which maybe it is. And so then I did this this move where I said, I said, help me understand what your goal is. When you're giving me this advice, what's the goal? And he said, well, I just want to increase the chance that you're going to, you know, do this or remember to say this in your talk. And I said, okay, so it doesn't have that effect. It actually, to some extent, has the opposite effect because what it does is it, it distracts me, makes me more nervous, and then I do worse. And you know, once he heard that, he at least is sort of understanding the conversation from my point of view um, and and can back up and say, okay, so what would be a way that would be helpful that I could, you know, remind you about this? And, you know, the answer may be, tell me the night before, or let's talk about it after, and then I'll do it the next time, that sort of thing. But I think too often, we just don't, we just aren't clear about uh, the actual impact on it. I think that um, learning how to, I don't know, consider and reject feedback is particularly important important in the internet, right? You can post something on Facebook and, you know, you're not looking for feedback. You're just kind of sharing something or whatever. And then like the cousin of your cousin chimes in with just some, you know, with their opinion on it. It's like, you need to do this, right? Blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, oh. Right. And for a lot of people, that can just like weigh on them, right? Just like, 
How, oh, yeah. get, receiving constant feedback via likes or comments on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. So how do you, how do you manage online feedback? Yeah. Well, you know, we, I think we're all subject to this is that the negative feedback stings much more than the positive feedback makes us happy. Right. So, you know, if you get a hundred comments and 99 of them are positive and one is negative, obviously, the one you're going to remember, the one that's going to stay with you is the negative one. So just for starters, it's good to be aware of that, that it's a common human reaction is that the, you know, it, I think it has to do with sort of our evolution that we uh, we're very sensitive to possible danger in the environment and good things are good. And we want to, you know, we want to pursue them, but danger is sort of urgent and an emergency. So when we see something that when we get that negative post, we're sort of wired to, to, to really focus on it. But with online stuff, I, uh, you know, my own, my own reaction, my first, re- so one way that I get online feedback is the comments on Amazon about our books. And like most of the comments on Amazon, you know, they're, they're mostly very positive, which is sweet and nice, but occasionally someone will have a negative comment. And my absolute first reaction is always something critical of that person in a, in a sort of irrational, crazy way. So someone will say something like this book is too long or, you know, this book is too hard or I don't know what my reaction is, you know, that, that person's a jerk or that person doesn't know how to read a book or like, you know, I, I don't have any information about this person. It could be mother Teresa for all I know, but the first reaction I have is going to be negative, dismissive and angry because that's kind of what's going on with me physiologically, which is fine. But then I step back and I just try to see the situation more rationally and think it is, you know, X number of people are reading the book. X number of people are going to comment on the book when they comment on it. Some of them are going to have, you know, good reasons for not liking the book. Some of them are just going to be people that think it's fun to put up crazy comments. Um, so, so sort of trying to, trying to get a, to remind ourselves what's really going on when people are, are posting some of those nastier comments, you know, they may, it's, it's, it's really, especially on the internet, I think it's rarely about the thing that's being commented on. And it's mostly about the person doing the commenting and what kind of mood they're in, uh, you know, what they're trying to get off their chest, et cetera. Um, you know, but it's, it's hard. We're all human beings trying to make it through and, when we see those kinds of negative feedback, even if we're thinking uh, that's some, you know, drunk, angry guy at 3 a.m. in the morning who just wanted to get some aggression out, there's another part of us that's thinking, yeah, but maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, maybe this book sucks or whatever. Yeah. I've had the drunk, angry guy leave emails at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning, you know, go on this tirade about something why i'm wrong and why my site sucks or whatever and and i'll say you know hey i, I thanks for reaching out but that, you could have given that feedback a little more tactfully and without without fail they always say oh i'm really sorry i had a bad day yesterday i got a little yeah exactly exactly and i shouldn't have done that um it's really funny how that happens um well hey doug this yeah. has been a great conversation where can people learn more about your book and your work uh well so uh, the book's available on, on all the, the sites amazon and Barnes and Noble, etc. Um, and our my website, my company is called Triad, T R I A D Consulting Group, and the website is just 
that all in one word, triadconsultantgroup.com. And that leads you to anything you could ever possibly need to know. Excellent. Well, Doug Stone, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. My guest today was Doug Stone. He's the author of the book. Thanks for the feedback. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out uh, his site, stoneandheen.com for more information about the book. Also check out the show notes at aom.is slash feedback for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, I appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.